This is The Guardian. Over the past decade or so, a change has been creeping its way into our diets. At breakfast time, almost all of your breakfast cereal will be ultra-processed. Even the stuff that's sold to you is weight loss and high fibre and vitamin-enriched, almost all ultra-processed. Your yoghurt at breakfast will be ultra-processed. It will have modified maize starch in it. The normal, everyday, often seemingly healthy foods we eat aren't what they appear. At lunch, there are sandwich shops that we will all recognise. They're sold to us as kind of organic and, and, and real food. The, the bread in those shops is all, all contains emulsifiers. The sauces contain dextrose and maltodextrin. It's all ultra-processed. Today, ultra-processed foods are everywhere, an inescapable part of modern life, a cheap, convenient way to eat. And for dinner, when we cook our frozen food, our ready meals, when we add sauces and condiments, that's all ultra-processed too. But studies from around the world suggest it could be driving the global obesity crisis and causing a range of health conditions from depression to cancer. So what does it mean for a food to be ultra-processed? How has this stuff taken over our diets? And what is it about ultra-processed foods that's such a problem? From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Chris Van Tullican, for those who don't already know you, you're a doctor, you're a broadcaster, and you're the author of Ultra Processed People. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food, and why can't we stop? So, what exactly is ultra processed food? So there's this really long formal scientific definition. It runs to several pages, actually. But you can boil it down to a pretty simple rule of thumb. If it's wrapped in plastic and it contains at least one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, then it's ultra-processed food. So most of the time, if a food has an ingredients list, you can look at that ingredients list and you will find things like emulsifiers, humectants, stabilizers, artificial coloring, natural coloring, natural flavoring artificial sweeteners, non-caloric sweeteners, all those things are signs that a food is ultra-processed. In the UK, 60% of our calories on average come from ultra-processed foods. And I'm interested in the word ultra because that implies that there's maybe processed foods and there's a scale here. Is this part of a kind of classification system and ultra-processed is at one end of it? If we think of milk as an example, milk is an unprocessed food. You can minimally process it, you can homogenize it, you can separate a bit of fat out, you can skim it, but it's still basically a whole food. Then you can process milk and you can process it to make traditional foods. So we've been processing milk for at least 7,000 years. We can make butter, cheese and yogurt. And they're all processed foods. They're not associated with poor health. Ultra processing is about making fake versions of those real processed foods. So instead of using dairy fat, you can take plant oils, which are liquid and spoil quickly, and you can deodorize them, refine them, hydrogenate them, interesterify them. Then you can combine them with colors and emulsifiers and water, and you can make margarine. Margarine's fake butter, and it's an ultra-processed food. 
this is one thing that's really quite surprising is there's a lot of ultra processed foods that aren't junk food that you wouldn't think you know when I made my breakfast this morning I was looking at the oat milk that I put in my coffee and it was ultra processed it's almost the case that if a food says you know will promote weight loss supports the immune system low in fiber reduced sugar those foods are almost entirely ultra processed you know our breads are a great example even if you're buying the seeded granary loaf with rye and pumpkin bits in it it's still ultra processed if you look on the label it will very likely have an emulsifier called datem or e472e it's one of the oldest emulsification agents we use and it's why supermarket bread has that kind of gummy slipperiness compared to say a loaf of six pound sourdough that you can buy from your local deli and it's one of the things that keeps our bread very cheap compared to that expensive sourdough did we get here? How did we go from food to ultra-processed food? We started, probably the best example of mass-produced UPF was stuff called Crisco, still buy it in the States, and it's a synthetic shortening. So instead of using lard or other solid fats for cooking butter, you can use cottonseed oil. Now, cottonseed oil, if you eat it out of cottonseed, is, is quite poisonous. It's very foul. It's very bitter and it's, it's liquid. So you can't use it for baking. Every, every bake, I don't bake stuff, but I think bakers really understand the importance of solid fats. So cotton gins were set up on the banks of the Mississippi River and all the seeds were just thrown in the river. And early food companies discovered that if they could get these seeds, crush them, get the oil out and add it to the human food chain, they were getting value from waste. And so a huge amount of UPF is taking essentially waste ingredients, byproducts of real food, and adding it to the human food chain to extract value. When you look on your peanut butter and you see that it's got some palm oil in it, that's simply because palm oil is cheaper than peanuts, and so you can fill out your peanut butter essentially with the cheapest possible fat, which is now palm fat. So it's not that this is food designed with evil intent or designed to deliberately harm you. It's just food that's made with an absolute indifference for human health, human life, the environment. It's not nourishment. The food system is about extracting money from us and supplying it to the owners of the ingredients companies. The other thing about profit is, of course, it incentivizes companies to make foods that are really hard to stop eating and ultimately quite addictive. And as you said, our diets are kind of being taken over by UPFs. I'm really curious as to why they've been taken over. I mean, you mentioned addictiveness and then there's the food industry itself wants to make these kinds of foods. But why is it that we've ended up eating so much of this stuff? So I think initially it was somewhat benign. Butter was expensive and margarine was cheap and did almost the same job. But if we look at Pringles, to name a brand, a, a quite a good example. Pringles are really old. So they were invented in the 60s. And the first generation of Pringles would have been quite different to the ones now because they've been through half a century of iterative design. So each year you put it through focus groups, you modify the flavor enhancers, you change the starch combinations, you change the oils. If people eat more of formulation A versus formulation B, that is the one that goes on the shelves. And next year, A is trialed against formulation C and D and E and F. And so the food is gradually iterated so that every aspect of it makes it more palatable. Mm -hmm. 
You're trying to drive down the price of ingredients and also make sure people buy more. to know about your own experiment with UPFs because they've hit the spotlight more recently. But Chris, when did they come onto your radar? A friend who's a TV producer gave me these two papers, one by Carlos Montero and one by a guy called Kevin Hall, who's a nutrition professor in the States. And these two papers presented the evidence that ultra-processed foods were behind the pandemic of diet-related disease. And so I joined up with some scientists where I work at University College London and went on a month-long experiment and I ate an 80% UPF diet for a month. So this is not an extreme diet. This is the diet of one in five people in the UK. It's a very normal diet. And so over a month, I guess three things happened. I gained so much weight that if I'd continued to do the diet in a year, I would have doubled my body weight. Then we looked at my hormones and what we found is that my hunger hormones, even relatively soon after quite a large meal, were absolutely sky high. So I was really unsatisfied by food at the end of the diet. But the most alarming thing was a brain scan where we found massively increased connectivity between the habit, automatic behavior parts of my brain and the reward parts of my brain. In other words, the automaticity of thinking and of eating was started to be linked very strongly to the bits of brain that drive desire and addiction. So what was it about it being a UPF diet specifically that was the problem and not, say, the fat, the sugar, the E-numbers that you might have been eating within that diet? When we do the population studies, there are very good statistical controls to adjust for salt, fat, sugar, fibre. And the effects on life expectancy, cancer, inflammation, and weight gain, and lots of other health outcomes remain exactly the same. In other words, it is the processing, not the nutrients. And the first thing you'll notice about most ultra-processed food is it's incredibly soft and incredibly dry. There's no moisture in it at all. And that's, that's for shelf life. It doesn't go off. The lack of water means it's incredibly calorie-dense. And the very intensive physical processing means that it's soft. Essentially, most ultra-processed food you can eat quicker than your hormone system that tells you to stop eating can catch up. And so you eat calories before you feel full. Then we've got all the additives. And the additives do different things to us. Some of them affect our mental health, and we've got quite good data on that. The emulsifiers seem to really, really interrupt our microbiome, the bugs inside us that keep us healthy. One of the big things that I think is going to prove to be important is that this is food that lies to us. So there are gums like xanthan gum and guar gum and locust bean gum. They replace fats in lots of yogurts and ice creams, but they aren't fat. Artificial sweeteners replace sugars, but they aren't sugars. Molecules like inosinate and guanolate and glutamate replace proteins. They have an umami flavor, but they often aren't paired with protein. So we get a signal in the mouth of fat, protein or sugar but that never arrives in the gut. And we think that maybe those kind of oral lies that the food is telling you, when the food doesn't arrive, it leads you to seek more of it. So we end up with these foods that are addictive. Chris, our relationship with weight and diet is surrounded by 
blame and shame and guilt. And it's led us to demonise and moralise foods. There are good foods and there are bad foods. And we're constantly faced with health claims that point the finger at, say, fat or sugar or carbs, and then say that we shouldn't be eating those anymore. And I do wonder whether UPF could be just the next version of this, you know, just another fad. I think it won't be, because there are no exceptions in the data. So we have very, very robust epidemiology. We have a small but very good clinical trial. We have masses of lab data. So you talk about labelling fat, salt and sugar as sort of demon molecules. And that stuff has been very misguided. The other thing we tend to do is when we list off our junk foods, we go, well, pizza's bad. Fried chicken is bad. Kebabs are bad. Pizza's a perfectly healthy traditional food. You know, sourdough base, cheese, tomatoes, bit of basil, bit of pepperoni. It's all completely legit. It's only when you start making it with plastic cheese and highly processed meats and emulsifiers and colorings and flavorings that it becomes bizarre and starts to drive excess consumption. The other thing is all the messaging about sugar, fat, it all came from the food companies. That's why we know it was all a lie. The independent nutrition science community were never saying quit carbs. They were never saying reduce the fat in your diet. That, that advice was essentially coming from the food companies. After doing a UPF diet and looking into the evidence around it, has it changed your relationship with ultra-processed foods? Something really weird happened when I was, when I was writing the book. I was speaking to a colleague in Brazil and we were talking about the food. And every time I said food, she kept correcting me. She went, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. And at the end of the call, I made my notes and I went to eat dinner and I'd ordered some fried chicken from a takeaway shop. And like, it was my favorite food. It's been my whole life. My, my weakness is these spicy fried chicken wings. I couldn't eat them. And she'd given me this gift, if you like. She'd released me from my addiction to this and many other foods. And I've long had quite an addicted relationship with these substances personally. So my invitation to the reader of the book is to keep eating while you read. And only by eating the food do you start to understand how it's affecting your body. And you sort of learn how to taste it. And then you may arrive at a moment like I did where you don't want to eat it anymore. Bearing all this in mind, and also the fact that we're in a cost of living crisis and people do need to put food on the table for their families, and they often have to do that in very difficult circumstances, what do you think needs to be done to wean us off UPFs? How do we begin to move our diets back to foods rather than ultra-processed substances? When people have freedom and opportunity... They choose not to eat this food. We know that rich people eat far less ultra-processed food than poor people. If you simply give people money, they stop eating this. So the first thing you do is you need to reduce poverty and inequality. And that solves probably more than half of the problem. People just stop buying it. And we need to stop the marketing of this food so aggressively to vulnerable people. The food industry has been incredible at co-opting government and doctors and all of us into believing that we are the problem, the problem lies in us. And, and the problem isn't with us, it's with the food. The jury is in, the epidemiology, the clinical trials, the lab evidence is really clear that the primary, perhaps the sole cause of pandemic obesity is ultra-processed food. So the food system must be reorganized from the ground up. But the most important thing 
is to get the food industry away from it. Most of the major charities that advise the government, that develop thoughts on food policy, that claim to be activists, are funded by the food industry. And we can't have that. You can't solve and create a problem. So if people get kind of one message from the book, I would want people to re-understand that particularly obesity is a commerciogenic illness. It's an illness that comes from commercial interests, just as lung cancer came from the commercial interests of the tobacco industry. And unless we start regulating this industry and get them away from policies so we don't have conflicts of interest, we won't solve the problem. Well, Chris, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It was really nice. Thanks again to Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. His book, Ultra Processed People, is out later this month. And there's also some great Guardian articles and an audio long read podcast by food journalist B. Wilson on ultra processed foods if you're keen to keep digging in. And we've put links to all of those on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Before you go, please don't forget to subscribe to The Guardian's podcast series, Cotton Capital, which is looking at The Guardian's links to transatlantic slavery. New episodes are released every Monday, and episode three follows award-winning journalist Deneen Brown as she travels to the Sea Islands in the United States to meet descendants of the West Africans who picked the cotton that made Manchester rich. Search for Cotton Capital wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onachukun. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Welcome to the EY Health Sciences and Wellness Experience podcast series, a series dedicated to exploring the trends that are reshaping the industry. No one is completely blowing up their existing supply chain and, and rebalancing it. It's fairly globally distributed on an end-to-end -end basis already, and they're really assessing is there a risk to the existing supply chain. Join us to examine and embrace the age of health experience.